Thank you for listening to this audio recording from the pastoral team at Church of the Redeemer, an Anglican church in Greensboro, North Carolina. If you'd like to know more about Church of the Redeemer, its ministry, or its mission, then visit us online at RedeemerGSO.org. Heavenly Father, take my lips and speak through them. Take our minds and think through them. Take our wills and bend them to your own. And above all else, Lord Jesus, set our hearts on fire with a love for you. And we pray these things in your name. Amen. Please be seated, and we are going to be in Acts chapter 2 today, so I encourage you, if you have your Bibles with you, to go there. Um, We usually have on Sundays um, someone that is celebrating during the liturgy, someone else that's preaching. Uh, Jared has been sick this week and uh, and is just getting over it. He was here at the 9 to to kind of be with us, but uh, asked me if I could take over the celebrating for today. So that's that's why I'm doing both today. So we just get to spend extra time together today. So, um, so we are, we are looking at Acts chapter 2 and this day of Pentecost. As we said at the beginning of the service, this might be a word that's new to some of us today because it is a profoundly important day for the church, not just our church, but the church, the, the universal church, the historic church, the future church. It's a, it's a major feast day, just like Christmas or Easter, but it gets a lot less fanfare, right? It, in, in some ways, Pentecost has a bit of a branding problem, right? It's a, it, doesn't, it doesn't get any presents on Pentecost. You don't have any mythological creatures breaking into your house to leave things behind. Um, there's, no, there's no serious XM radio station devoted to two months of Pentecost music. Um, Taylor Swift hasn't recorded yet a, a Pentecost uh, album yet. I don't know. Um, she did do Sparks Fly, though, right? Um, that's kind of Pentecosty. Anyway, <laughs> I had to look that up clearly. Um, but uh, so, so what is Pentecost? What what is this word? Why is this important? Why did we just read that reading uh, in in lots of different native tongues as well? Why did we do that? And it was startling, right? Um, but uh, and so so why? Let's unpack this a little bit, okay? So Acts chapter two, verse one. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. So they are the disciples. At this point, Jesus has been born, he's lived, he has died on the cross, he's been resurrected, he he has ascended to heaven, Uh, and the disciples, the apostles, are all together in one place on this day of Pentecost. And the day of Pentecost has its roots in the Old Testament. Uh, You can read about it in places like Exodus 34, uh, where it's called the festival or the feast of weeks. Uh, And Pentecost is just the Greek translation of that because it's 50 days from Passover. So thing like Pentagon is five sides. Pentecost is, is 50 days after Passover. And it's a celebration for the people of Israel of the harvest. The harvest, okay? So this was a big celebration in Israel. Many people would, would take a pilgrimage to Jerusalem for this event. So all of the disciples are together in one place. And then verse 2, it says, And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. That's weird. 
Right? Like that's, uh, I mean, that's sort of strange. That's, that's not a normal occurrence, even in the scripture or, or for us as well. Um, to truly understand what is going on here, though, uh, we need some context. Okay? Because, because the Bible is, is a narrative. It's a story. It's a, it's, some parts of it are out of chronological order, which makes it a little bit difficult. But the whole thing is the story of what we would call redemptive history or the history of how God is redeeming the world. This, the Bible tells us how, how we got started, how we got to where we are now, why we need Jesus as a Savior in the midst of that, where we're headed. The Bible discusses all of those things. And if we try to take the day of Pentecost and sort of pluck it from that timeline and just look at it by itself, it's awkward and strange and has very little meaning. So what we're going to do today is put it back in that context of the greater timeline. And we're going to start back in Genesis chapter 1 to be able to do that. We'll be finished at 7.30 this evening. Um, <laughs> Grubhub delivers. Um, we'll make sure that everybody's well fed in the process. Genesis chapter, chapter 1. In Genesis chapter 1, we start to see the story of creation. And the beautiful thing about this story in Genesis chapter 1 is that on one hand, it is very ordered. It's, you can see God create the different spheres, like the, the sky and the ocean and the land. And then you see, and on subsequent days, God create the things that are going to live in those spheres, the, the things that are going to swim in the sea and the, and the birds that are going to fly in the air and the animals that are going to be on the land. And there's this, there's this order in this structure. But at the same time, Genesis chapter 1 is poetry. It's, when you read it in the Hebrew, it's, it, is, uh, it is poetic. And so not only is it giving us a description of how God created things, but it is done in a musical, rhythmic, almost dance kind of way. Uh, that if you ever read the Chronicles of Narnia and you read about uh, Aslan, the Jesus figure, creating Narnia, he sings it into existence. And that's C.S. Lewis, good Anglican, by the way, um, that, uh, uh, that, uh, that's C.S. Lewis echoing Genesis chapter 1, where God is singing creation into existence through this song or this poem. And so you see here a, a rhythm, a harmony, a beauty, a melody, a dance, sort of a, almost like a strut that is happening in Genesis chapter 1. As you hear God on day 1, God said blank, and it was, and God saw that it was good, and there was evening, and there was there was morning the first day. And on day two, God said blank, and it was. And God saw that it was good, and there was evening, and there was morning the second day. And this rhythm keeps going throughout the first six days of creation. Then we see God create mankind. Genesis chapter 2 retells the story of Genesis chapter 1 with a little more emphasis on the creation of mankind. And we see that from the dust of the earth, God creates Adam, and then he breathes life into him. There's no other animal that God breathes his image and his life into like he does mankind. We're different. We're not the same as all of the other animals. We are made in the image of God. And then for the first time, this, this 
uh, this harmony and this rhythm is broken because God says something for the first time is not good. Because Adam is standing there going, I don't even, I don't even know what to do. Like, here I am. I don't, I don't know what to do. And God says, it is not good for man to be alone. And so there's this great scene where God brings all the animals by and, uh, and Adam is, gets to name all of them. Uh, and I don't know where he came up with all of the names, but you know, he's like giraffe, duck-billed platypus, right? I mean, I don't know. He, but anyway, he names them all and it says no suitable helper for him is found. No, nothing that is, that is equal to and yet complementary to who he is. There's nothing, there's nothing that is named in all of that and God puts him to sleep, pulls out one of his ribs, um, makes Eve. Adam wakes up, has to name her too and goes, whoa, man, right? Like, because everybody's naked at the time, and this is his response, right? And they're like, that's good. That'll work. Um, and, so, uh, and so you've got Adam and Eve together, and what you have, he says, he says in here, after seeing all the animals and everything go by, when he sees woman, he goes, at last, bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. And you see here a unity between Adam and Eve, and then you see God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, walking with them. There's a unity with God. There's this harmony that everything's dancing to this rhythm of Genesis chapter 1. God takes them to the edge of the garden, and he says to them, look, I have, you can read this in Genesis chapter 2, that that the world is a, a wilderness, an untamed wasteland, and God plants a garden in the east. And so they're in this garden, and God takes them to the edge of the garden, and he says to them, go, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it. And when he's saying subdue it, he's not saying, not saying oppress it. He's saying, I have built into you my image, and I have built into creation potential. And so I want you as co-creators to enter into this potential and discover engineering and discover architecture, and discover how to make ships that can sail on the sea and harness the wind, and eventually how you can make, how you can make airplanes that will fly in the sky. And all of that, I've created that potential, and you get to be with me, then and unleash the potential that I have built into it, so that Creation can then turn around and go, isn't this God glorious who has built all of these things and we get to be in participation with him and with one another. There's unity with the people, with their vocation, with their God, with their purpose, with the land itself. That lasts for, let me find it now, it's, it's kind of a skinny part of the Bible. This page of the Bible. <laughs> because that's Genesis chapter 1 and 2, and then we get to Genesis chapter 3. I promise we'll go faster through the rest of this. Uh, that, uh, uh, and what happens in Genesis chapter 3 is what we call the fall. And what happens in the fall is that it's not some sort of magical fruit that they ate, that like Snow White and put them to sleep or gave them some disease or something. What happened is God has said, here's the rhythm, here's the harmony, here's, participate with me, come, let's go do this together and be in harmony in this. 
But there is a choice. If you want to do it your own way, then you disregard your trust in me that my way is best, and there's this other tree. And if you eat from that, that is you saying, we don't trust you in any of that, and we think that our way is better and best. And the serpent comes and deceives them. doesn't take too much arm twisting, right? That, that Satan basically comes in the form of a servant, serpent and says, you know, why can't you eat that good-looking fruit? over there. Why not? I know that God might have said that you're going to know the difference between good and evil, and the, but what he's, he's really afraid of you because of your potential and what you could become and your greatness, and he's afraid that you doing it his, your own way would be better than his way, and so he's trying to limit you. And they're like, oh, you're right. That's, that's yes. Our way of being fruitful, multiplying, filling the earth, and subduing it is probably better than this rhythm and this flow and this music that we have been dancing to up to this moment. And they break and they go their own way. And what we see happens is that immediately shame enters into the world. Immediately, where they have been naked and unashamed up until that point, they immediately realize they're naked, put on leaves and things, because they have, there's brokenness between them, even as a married couple. We see their way, our way, the human way, not God's way, brings about separation between them. And then God comes walking for, the, for his walk in the day, uh, the cool of the day in the garden, and they decide to hide from him. There's a brokenness between people and God right from the beginning. Like, you can hide from God, right? He's everywhere. Um, they decide to hide in a bush. Like, this is how ridiculous our way of thinking really is, right? Like, Adam's hiding in a bush. Like, God, like God's going... I swear I left my people in this garden. I don't know where, where are they? I mean, I, I, I don't know what they were thinking, but they're hiding from him, and God says, where are you guys, right? Um, and uh, it's like your three-year-old standing in the corner like this, right? <laughs> like, well, I don't know where you went. And, uh, and so, so Adam pops up, and here's his response. Let me explain. God, I know this looks bad. But <clears throat> the woman that you gave to me made me eat the apple and it's all gone downhill from there, right? Like you can see, gentlemen, married gentlemen, you can, you can see the look on Eve's face right now, can't you? Like this is going to go really badly when God is not standing right there, right? That, uh, that there's, there's enmity in the marriage immediately. Uh, uh, Adam is abdicating any kind of leadership, any kind of ownership of anything. There's, there is brokenness and blame and argument. And there's, there is what happens in the midst of all of that is that their relationship with God, one another, even the earth itself and their vocation is all broken it's all broken because they say they're going to do it their own way and then God it says that he provides them clothes through the skin of animals so we see one of the first thing that comes out of sin entering into the world is death something died because of their sin God's way brings about life and rhythm and harmony and beauty our way brings about death but this, this call to go, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it has been built into us. It is who we are to go and do these things, to cultivate, to multiply, to go. But what happens because of sin entering into the world is that what starts to spread is not that same beat and rhythm and beauty and harmony of God, but sin starts to spread. You see it spread from Adam and Eve, 
into their children, where Eli and Silas, I mean Cain and Abel, kill one another because they can't seem to get along. Sin spreads, right? And then it starts to move even farther from that, and sin and wickedness spread across the entire world so badly that we get to the point of Genesis chapter 7, 8, 9, where we get to Noah. And God says to Noah, it's all, it's all bad. It's all wickedness. You save your family and all the animals. Get on the ark. And this is where we get the beautiful children's story when God kills all the people on the planet. And, uh, and, uh, and we decorate their nurseries in, in judgment uh, curtains and uh, with bloated bodies on the dust ruffle of the crib. It's fantastic, this, uh, this story. And, uh, and so God saves some of the people through the water in the ark, there's a saving that's happening in the midst of the judgment. And so eventually those waters recede, the ark lands on the ground. Moses, I mean, sorry, Noah comes out of the, uh, of the ark. And what does God say to him? First thing he says to him, go, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it. Like I got a plan. This is how it works. Even though people are trying to mess it up, there is a particular thing that's happening here. And Noah goes, okay, we're on it. That lasts long enough to grow grapes, ferment them, make them into wine, and have this drunken party that Noah has where there's nakedness again that's involved in shameful ways and sin starts to spread again. So then... This, this is where we get into these, this strange chapter of Genesis uh, where if you started, if you at the beginning of the year committed yourself to reading the Bible through over the course of the year, this is where you stop. <laughs> Genesis chapter 10, where it says, These are the generations of the son of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Jephthah. Sons were born to them after the flood. The sons of Jephthah, Gomer and Magog and Madai and Juven and Tubal and Mesach and Tiras. And, and it goes on and on and on of all of these names that we call the table of nations. Why is that even in the Bible? Well, what it's showing is that the people are being fruitful and multiplying. But there are names that start to pop up in this list that what we start to see is that they are multiplying, but not in the harmony of how God would want them to multiply. And we start to see names like Egypt begin to come up in here. And others like Nimrod is his name, who, uh, who begins the Assyrian Empire and other places as well. And so we start to see in the table of nations that things are moving forward but in an unhealthy way, a skewed version of what God has done. Which brings us to a familiar story in Genesis chapter 11, where we talk about the Tower of Babel. Here's what happens at the Tower of Babel. It says this, The whole earth had one language and the same words. And as the people migrated from the east, you see they're moving, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and they settled there. And they said to one another, listen, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Architecture, right? Engineering. They're, 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 doing, they're, they're doing some of the things, but they're not doing them for the express purpose that God has created in the beginning for his glory and the health of everyone. Here's what they say. Let us build a city for ourselves and a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. 
Do you hear what's happening here? They're working not for the glory of God, but to make a name for themselves. And why? So that they won't be spread across the whole earth. Didn't God explicitly say, go, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth? So they are organizing against the purposes and work of God. They're building an anti-kingdom to the kingdom of God. And we see it here beginning in Babel. And why would you build a tower with its top in the heavens? So if God decides he doesn't like this and is going to flood the earth again, you climb to the top of your tower and you go... Right? Like you say, you can't, you, we're, we can build higher than you, we can, we can outsmart you, we can be bigger than you, and if our tower's up into heavens, we are going to be equal with you. It's gone from what Adam and Eve did of going, yeah, I think, I think we can probably do this better, to aggressive, organized pursuit of our own glory against the will and working of God. So God God does something. He uh, confuses their language. So they don't all have one language anymore. He confuses their language. And then it says this, And from there, the Lord dispersed them over the face of the earth. God said, I said, go. Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. Like, go. And so he scattered them and confused their language. And so now you have the world that is multiplying and spreading, but is is in disunity with one another and separated from God. And God does not leave us in this place, but begins the process of redemption. And he chooses, out of all of that, to some obscure shepherd named Abram. We'll call him Abraham because his name has changed in a little bit. You have to read the story to understand that. So he chooses Abraham and he says, I'm going to make a covenant with you. Here's a summary of the covenant. I'm going to be your God, you're going to be my people. And I'm going to make out of you a great nation. I'm going to make lots of people out of you. And I'm going to make your name great. And I'm going to bless you. And I'm going to protect you. And I'm going to give you land. And through your people, all the nations on the earth will be blessed. He has not forgotten the nations. He has said, through the people that I'm going to make through you, all of the earth is going to be blessed. So, Abram, go. Go from the land and your people and go to the land that I will show you. He sends him again. It's the constant sending of God in the midst of the Old Testament scripture. And so when we trace the story, we go through Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph you have to read all those stories on your own. Joseph, through a series of, of situations, the people of God become slaves under Egypt. Egypt, one of the greatest anti-kingdoms, the greatest organization of man against the workings of God, building pyramids and the greatest features of architect, architecture. We still can't figure out how they did it, right? Um, and, uh, and so that our People, the people of God are slaved under them. So God chooses this guy named Moses, who's a murdering stutterer, so that no one's confused as to whether it's the strength of Moses that brings them out from under Egypt. And he appears to him in a burning bush, a flame, a fire, a curiosity even, that Moses comes and God speaks to him and he says, Go, I'm sending you to get my people and bring them out of Egypt. 
And it works. Again, very interesting story for you to go read on your own. But he brings them out of Egypt, out from under the oppression of the greatest kingdom that man perhaps has ever made. That God goes, at my whim, at the snap of my fingers, I can release you from man's greatest achievement. And I'm going to bring you out. And they walk out through the Red Sea. You know the story. If you have any background in church, they walked out. The sea spreads. God walks them out. The sea covers back up, protects them from the Egyptians. And so they're out of Egypt, between Egypt and the land that God is taking them to, the promised land. And he says to them, okay, look, your first parents, Adam and Eve, said... You, you're better off doing this your own way without me. Okay, well, if you're going to be holy and perfect and righteous and just on your own without me, you need some guidance. So I'm going to give you the law. So Moses walks up to the top of the mountain and God gives them the holy law of perfection. And he comes down from the mountain with three tablets and he says, these are the 15 commandments. And then he drops one, smash, these are the 10 commandments. If you don't know that movie reference, I'm going to leave you to go research that one. Um, but he says the Ten Commandments, and, uh, and this is the, the law of purity, the sacrificial system, the, 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 food, uh, the, the food purity laws, the priesthood, where he's saying, in you, you're going, here's the law of holiness for you to live up to on your own. When you don't, when you sin against these laws, you have to know that bad things come out of that. And so... I want to show you a reminder of the repercussions of your sin. And so you're going to take an animal, lay your head on it, like you're putting your sins on it, grab it, pull its neck back, and cut its throat and let it bleed out all over the ground. And it's hot and sticky and smelly and violent for you to recognize, okay, if you're going to do this on your own, there are major repercussions if you do this wrong. Death happens because of sin. Ask Cain and Abel, right? So you also are going to need a priesthood, someone to stand between you uh, and a holy God because you are sinners, you Israelites, and you need an intercessor between you and God, between the unholy and the holy. So we're going to make the priesthood, the, the ironic priesthood, not the ironic priesthood. This is from, from Aaron. Um, and you're going to have a priesthood that is going to be an intercessor between you who are going to make sacrifices on your behalf. And so the rest of the Old Testament is Israel trying to work this out, trying to be God's people, trying to live up to the law. And there's all the stories of the rest of the Old Testament where they get into the land, Moses hands the baton over to Joshua who goes into the promised land to try to, to, try to conquest the promised land. He doesn't do that really well either. Then there's this whole thing with the judges. This is Samson, if you've ever heard of Samson, where there's this cycle of sin where The people are like, yay, we're in the land that you gave us. We're going to worship you, God. Um, And then they start to forget him, worship other gods. And God goes, all right, like if you want, if you're going to worship the other gods, let them protect you. Go, go do that. I'm just going to stand here. Bad guys come in, end up taking over Israel. Israel goes, oh no, we really need our God to save us. And so they repent and they come back. God, you really need to help us. He raises up a judge for them, like Samson, who beats up the bad guys, runs them out, and they all go, yay, God is our God. And then they go, except that God's really nice. And so then they start moving after that other God. God goes, fine, if you're going that way, here's the wrath of God most of the time in the Old Testament. All right, fine, just go do it. I'll just watch if that's what you want. 
right? And so there's this cycle of, of sin and God continuing to rescue his people. And the people then reject his whole sovereignty, his whole kingship, and say, this just isn't working. We need our own king. God's like, well, I'll give you a king, but he's going to tax you. He's going to draft your people um, and take you into war. It's not going to go well for you. And they're like, no, no, like all the other nations have a king. We want a king too. God goes, okay, I'll give, you, I'll give you a king. And so you have a king who's supposed to lead Israel. Um, and he's, one of the king's first jobs is he's supposed to take the law of God, the first five books of the Old Testament, the Torah, the book of Moses, the Pentateuch, and he's supposed to hand copy, a copy for himself so he knows how to lead the people. The kings are so bad at this, at one point they have forgotten about the existence of the law uh, and they discover it when they're cleaning the temple at one point and a priest picks it up and goes, whoa, this seems important, right? Like that's how far away the kings go. And so then you have all the story of the prophets, the prophets like Isaiah and Ezekiel and all of these guys that come and what they are, they, they are what we would call covenant prosecutors. So they say there's a covenant God will be our God, we'll be his people. Here's the law of how we're supposed to act as his people. Now, I'm going to open it up and go, you're guilty here, you're guilty here, you're guilty here, you're guilty here. Breach of contract in the covenant. So, repent and come back if we want God to be our people. I mean, our God, and we be his people. So, most of the prophets are beaten or killed and thrown out of town. So, here's what we've got at the end of the Old Testament a people that for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years are trying to live according to what Adam and Eve have taught them um, or that they can do this better without God. They have his guidance, they have his prophets, they have the kings, and they are in a place where the world is not being blessed through them, where they are not flourishing, where they are very aware of their sin and unable to heal themselves. It's bleak. That's how the Old Testament ends. So then, God, who is the God who redeems, does the ultimate act of sending. For God so loved the world that he sent or gave his only son that whoever would believe in him will not die but will have eternal life. God sends again. Go, go this time says, I'm coming myself in the form of Jesus. And so Jesus, this is why Jesus is so unique because he is he is fully man. He was born through Mary. He's fully man, and so he has the debt of mankind to pay of fulfilling the law, but he also is divine at the same time and therefore has the ability to be able to pay that debt. He's not skewed by the sin of Adam and Eve that all of us have been. He's unique. That's why we say there is no other name under heaven by which we can be saved because there is no one else like Jesus. Every religion is not the same just by different names, because there is only one Jesus who is divine and human and who can make atonement for the sins of the people. So God comes in the person of Jesus Christ, lives a sinless life, shows his sovereignty, his kingship, by even over creation itself, by being able to calm storms and multiply food and heal people who are, uh, who are sick. And he lives a sinless life, and yet... He is condemned under the law anyway, even though he was not guilty. 
And what this does is puts him in the position then because he has the capital um, to be able to pay for the sins of others because he took their punishment upon himself. He becomes the fulfillment of the Old Testament sacrificial system because someone had to die for our sins, so God himself stepped in. He becomes the great high priest who says there is someone who needs to be a mediator between God and man and it will be God himself in the person of Jesus who comes as both the sacrificer and the great sacrifice. And then, after he atones for the sins of the people and he is laid in the tomb, he says, I'm not done. You thought the exodus where I could bring you out from under the oppression of mankind's greatest earthly enemies? You thought that was a big deal? I can save you from the greatest enemies of all, Satan, sin, and death. The exodus out of death itself by the one who has created us is the only one who, uh, who can give us new life as well. And he rises again on the third day, defeating death, reversing the sin of Adam and Eve, correcting the the fall. And what it takes to take part in that is simply coming through faith, saying, we believe that your way is the right way. We believe in you. The opposite of the sin of Adam and Eve, faith, repentance, and belief. And when we repent and believe, the Bible tells us that we are adopted into the people of God, just like in the very beginning when we were told to go, be fruitful, multiply, a people is being created through Jesus. Jesus traces his lineage back to Abraham and the people of God so that through the blessing of Abraham and those people that that Jesus is born out of the Israelite people and he is a blessing to the whole world, fulfilling the covenant of Abraham. He is the fulfillment of the entirety of the Old Testament, showing that indeed we do need God. The rest of the Old Testament is about showing that Genesis chapter 3, that they were wrong and providing a way home for us through God himself, who has entered into his creation to redeem us. So then, after his resurrection, Jesus appears to his disciples. This is in Luke 24. And he says to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. In other words, he just said what we call the Old Testament. All of that was written about me. All of it points to me. You can't read the Old Testament without seeing how it points to Jesus, how he fulfills all of it. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures, it said. And he said to them, this is what is written, that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning in Jerusalem. That's what he says is a summary of the whole Old Testament. And he says to them, you are witnesses of these things. And behold, I'm sending the promise of my Father upon you. But stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. So he says to them, look, you're gonna, you've got work to do. There's witnesses to this, but I'm not just going to say, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it. Go. Didn't work for Adam and Eve. Didn't work for Noah. Like this is not, and so, so here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to now come 
inside of you and give you power to be able to do this work. To just in the same way that I breathed my life into, uh, into Adam by breathing into his nostrils. I'm now going to breathe a new life in me, in the Holy Spirit, so that you can go about the work you have been created to do. John chapter 20 says, Jesus said to them, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. As the Father has sent me to seek and save the lost, to renew all things, to redeem all things, as the Father has sent me, I'm sending you in the same way. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. The breath of God. The, in, in, the, in the Hebrew, it's ruach. In the, in the Greek, it is pneuma. Hagios Numa, the Holy Spirit or the Holy Breath of God that brings life to the world. Then we see in Matthew chapter 28, he says, All authority on heaven and on earth has been given to me, and so therefore, go. Make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I'm with you always until the very end of the age. What did he just say? Go, be fruitful, make disciples, multiply, fill the earth, every nation, all of those nations that, uh, that have been confused and scattered and separated. Go make disciples of all nations. And what he's saying to them, this is a renewal of that covenant with Adam and Eve where he said the rest of the world is a wilderness and you have this lush garden. Go make the rest of the world look like this garden. Now he's saying you've seen the gospel and the garden of the gospel and the lush gospel and the, uh, and the harmony that it brings and the healing that it brings and the flourishing that it brings. Now you go take it to the rest of the world. Go make the rest of the world look like the church. Go, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it. And so now here we are in the book of Acts. And we begin our sermon. No, I'm just kidding. That in Acts chapter 1... It says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. That's concentric circles. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, ends of the earth. There's a spreading. And when he said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took, them, took him out of their sight. This is the ascension that Sergio preached on last week. Just as the people stood at the base of the Tower of Babel looking up, to try to find their salvation and their great and glorious name. Now the people are standing on the ground, looking up, seeing both glory and humility in their creator, who is saying, this is not for your own glory, but for mine. And this is not so that you can stay here on this mountain, but so that you can go. Go. But there's still this language problem, right? And that brings us. To Acts chapter 2. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, the breath of God, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. 
and divided tongues of fire like a burning bush. The purifying heat, light, spread of fire appeared to them and rested on each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Why? Because God is reversing the work of Babel so that the people can be united in their participation in his redemption of all things where he confused their language when they were trying to unite against him, now that they are united for him by the power of the Holy Spirit, he is saying the ends of the earth need to be blessed. And I'm going to give you the, the ability to be able to speak to them. And so then it says, at this sound, this, this, uh, this mighty rushing wind, there were many dwelling in Jerusalem from every nation under heaven, it says. And they gathered together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished because God was bringing his word to them in a way that they could hear and understand. And what were they saying? Well, the end of this passage says, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. All of the things that we've just talked about, creation and, and Noah and Moses and Abraham and Joshua and all of the things and the kings and the prophets and all of it coming together, they're telling this story. They are telling that thus it is written, the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations. The gospel is not just simply that Jesus died for our sins. It's not just simply that. This says that the gospel is Jesus died on the cross for our sins to bring salvation to the world and that message will be carried to the ends of the earth. There's not the product of the gospel and a separate shipping department that is mission. They're all the same. The gospel and its spread and its redemption of the world is all the gospel. And so friends, this is the church. And we can jump quickly from here to application to us because we are the church. And the same spirit that has fallen upon the apostles is resting upon us. And the same command that was on Adam and Eve and Noah and was rekindled in the apostles is on us. Go, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it. Go, make disciples of all nations, baptize them, bring them into the people of God and teach them, disciple them, grow them up so that they can be sent out as missionaries as well. This call was not just to the apostles, but to all who would come after them. And it's only because faithful people in the church have listened to this call that you and I are sitting in this room today. It is previous generations who have been faithful to this Pentecostal call that has passed down the faith so that we have heard them. Faithful parents and faithful friends and family and co-workers and missionaries who have taken this gospel out is why you and I are here. And the reason that the next generation will sit in this room long after we're gone and forgotten is because of the work that we are called to today. To repent and believe and come to know the Lord. To be saved and to save others. Friends, we long for the day that this, the Spirit is poured out upon His church around the world in this similar way. May it start here. 
This is the call to Redeemer. May we pray for a mighty rushing wind and tongues of fire upon our heads that we would be moved, that we would be changed and can't help ourselves but go to share the good, mighty acts of God with others. That we can be His witnesses in Greensboro and the Triad and North Carolina and to the ends of the earth. That Redeemer can be a place that the Lord finds a people willing to receive His Spirit and faithful to go in His name. That we plant churches, that we make disciples, that we are together in unity showing the world what the garden of the gospel looks like so that people can look in on this place and say it's different. How they treat each other, how they act towards one another, how they love one another, how they serve one another, how they're generous and they give away, how they're not anxious, how they have deep peace, how this place is different from the world. And when they say, why? And we say, Jesus, and you can know him too. And the power of the Spirit is upon us to do this work. He has not left us as orphans. He has not left us unprepared or ill-equipped. He has said, I will be with you always to the very end of the age and placed His Spirit in our hearts. You are an apostle. You are a disciple. You are a missionary. That's what this day of Pentecost is all about. And friends, let us be this church. Let us pray that the Lord moves in our hearts in these ways. Let us repent from what, do we, what we need to repent from. Let us be open and willing to receive what the Lord wants to send. And let us be faithful to go where he sends us. The Lord has great things in store for us, in us, through us, for this city. And he's calling us to follow him. Go, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth and subdue it in Jesus' name. Pray with me. Lord, we need your transforming power. We can't, we can't intellectually convince ourselves of these things or emotionally rev ourselves up for it. There's so many things that make us in our flesh want to push back against these things. And, and our world is a place of cynicism and suspicion and, and, and anger and frustration and, uh, and, uh, and a place that wants to to encourage us to eat the fruit of glorifying our own name. We still have the blood of Babel in our veins. And we need your help to unify us, to guide us, to empower us, and let us go forth in your name to make a people for you. Prepare the hearts of those outside of these walls to receive the gospel and let us be faithful to share it with them. For those in this room right now who long to know you, who long to repent and believe, move in their hearts and let them turn to you in faith to repent and be baptized and to learn to obey everything you have commanded us. And Lord, we long for the day that you're going to come to renew all things. And it's our time to rest in that garden that you will create when you will be once again in the midst of us. Until that time, let us be faithful. Let us be on your mission. Let us be strong and courageous. And let us be ever mindful that you have said that you will be with us always until the end of the age. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.